pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing to you. Oh, Lord, you are our rock. You are our redeemer. And would you have your way with us now? Amen. Well, the green that you're seeing here in front of you is a symbol that partly stands for growth, growth in God's kingdom. One of the things about this ordinary time season, um, if you are like me and you go ordinary, well, I just think of terms like plain or boring. And as I said last week, it's not boring time. It's not boring season or plain season. It's actually an invitation to grow in God's kingdom. If you need a name for it, you might call it kingdom tide. What does it look like to grow up as a disciple in God's kingdom? That's what we're going to be looking at over the rest of this summer together. And Dr. Luke, the gospel writer, Luke, is our guide this year. And so we're focusing on what does it look like to grow as a disciple of Jesus? And last week, we started this a turning point chapter in Luke 9 for the first eight chapters of the book of Luke. He's been asking the question to his readers, to his audience, who is Jesus? Who is he? That the winds and waves obey him. Who is Jesus? That's the first question. But then Jesus turns and he asks his disciples, not only who do the crowds say that I am, but who do you say that I am? And they get clear about that and they answer and they give the correct answer. And Jesus says, now that we're clear on who I am, I want you to understand where I'm going. And in Luke 9, he shocks and he surprises his disciples. Last week I said this, it's like the smelling salt in certain sports that's put under your nose. And it's sort of like, whoa, that's kind of hard to breathe in. But you begin to get a clearer picture of what it means to follow him. His words were shocking last week in response to the question, who do the crowds say that I am, and who do you say that I am? I'm going to just make another point to say this week that every disciple in every age needs to be clear about these two questions. Who do the crowds in North Texas in the 21st century say Jesus is? We need to spend time reflecting and thinking and praying about who, who they think Jesus Christ is. Um, what comes to mind when they think about Jesus compared to maybe you and I as a follower of him. And then we also have to get clear on our answer to when Jesus looks at us and he says, now who, for you personally, who do you say that I am? And every person in this room, regardless of your age, needs to get clear on both of those questions. Um, you guys remember the film in the 1980s, The Princess Bride? Come on. Yeah? All right, pretty famous, still to this day. I made my kids watch it, and I was like, this is, this is actually kind of awkward now, you know, 20-something, 30-something years later. Um, well, there's this one character that keeps repeating this one word over and over in all types of situations, and in a way that doesn't really always apply, and he says the word, inconceivable, right? And finally, the great theologian Inigo Montoya tries to clarify something, and he says, you can sort of see it up there, you keep using that word, but I don't think it means what you think it means. I don't think the word that you keep using means what you think it means. And I want to tell you what happens in Luke 9 for the disciples then and now is Jesus looks at them and he says, you keep using this term, the disciple. I'm a, I'm a follower of Christ. I want to tell you that you and I both need to hear Jesus say, I don't think it means what you think it means. I think you've got a... a, a, a a perverted, small understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Because what happens in Luke 9 is once they get clear about who he is, 
They give him the right answer. And he says, I don't think this term means what you think it means because I have set my face to Jerusalem. I am going to suffer many things. I'm going to the cross. And they're just sort of like, I'm not so sure you understand what Messiah means, Jesus. He's not Elijah. He's not John the Baptist. He won't let the crowds sort of leave him to just be another great prophet. But what have we turned him into? Sort of a cosmic therapist, a divine butler we talked about last week. So there was confusion back then about who Jesus is and what it meant to follow him. There is deep confusion today about who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. So let's look and pay attention at Jesus's instruction to us if we wanna be his disciples and learners. We saw that he's not just our private, personal, tribal Messiah. He's Lord of all. He's Lord of all of our life. And this means he, he, he will become our first love. We won't be able to say any longer, I'll follow you, but first... That was last week. He says, follow me. This becomes the repetitive sort of chorus throughout Luke for the next nine chapters. Okay, if you want to be clear about who I am, you've got to follow me. Where well, he, He's going somewhere. Where is Jesus going? What's repeated in Luke 9 over and over, you heard it in the gospel reading. It's he has set his face like flint to Jerusalem. To follow Jesus means he's going somewhere. There was a first century phrase that in my very first sermon I preached at Church of the Resurrection almost eight years ago, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. The idea was that in a dirt-covered culture and reality, sandals, long cloaks, that you'd be following so closely to Jesus that literally the dust that he was stirring up would cover the front of your cloak. This is the idea that Jesus wants his disciples to have, is that to follow him is to get in step with him. Well, where's he going? He's going to suffer for the sake of others. He's going not up to powerful positions here in this world as you and I know them, but he's actually gonna give his life away for the sake of others. And this causes tremendous confusion for them and us. Look at verse 51 of chapter nine of Luke, because we find ourselves today, I didn't pick this passage for today. We're following the lectionary uh, some of you will think, oh no, he picked this one for today after what happened Friday. I didn't. He finds himself, it's a really a lesser uh, known, uh, lesser observed moment in Luke 9. Um, he goes ahead, well, let me just read it. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, again, he set his face to Jerusalem. That's where he's headed. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and they entered the village of the Samaritans. Just pause for a moment. Um, this is a gracious act by the Lord showing that he is Lord of all. He's going to a town and village that any Jewish rabbi would never travel in, going to their space on their terms, on their turf to offer the kingdom to them. So that's where he's gonna go. But the people didn't receive him. They don't want him there. And it actually tells us why in verse 53, because his face was set towards Jerusalem. The turning point in the gospel of Luke is not only that the disciples start to get clear about who Jesus is, but they now have to be confronted with what it means to follow him. He is headed to Jerusalem. He's going to give his life away. I want to add, there were two things we said last week, that if you say, I'm a disciple of Jesus, if we want to get clear on what Jesus says that means, it means, last week, two things. 
He is Lord of all of life, not just, not just a, a section. He's Lord of everything, and he's Lord of everyone, every tribe, tongue, and nation. The offer of the kingdom is available, and this means he will become your first love. You will no longer say, well, but first let me go and establish the career I want, but first let me do this with my family, or but first, there, he will be first over all and in all over time if you know who he is. I wanna add a third, okay, here it is. If you are a disciple, a follower of Jesus, here's what will happen. You will become tender-hearted, compassionate, gentle towards those who are different than you. If you are a follower of Jesus, you will become more gentle and tender-hearted and compassionate towards those who are different than you. This is not optional. This is not for like a select few, like the Navy SEALs that are in the church. If you call yourself a disciple of Jesus, here's what that term means. You will over time become more and more gentle towards outsiders. These disciples gathering around Jesus, hey, they didn't get this initially. They didn't get it. They think that Jesus is here to establish his kingdom by force and by coercion. They think Jesus Christ is here to use the world's methods to accomplish kingdom ends. And so look at what they say. After the Samaritans, the Samaritans rejected you, Jesus. We know who you are, and they rejected you. And so look at what happens when the disciples, James and John, you remember their other little tagline phrase of who they are? They're the sons of Zebedee. They're the sons of thunder. Oh, they hear what the Samaritans do and look at the question they ask in verse 54. Lord, you want us to call down fire from heaven and consume them? Instead of what I did when I first read this, just going, gosh, they don't get it. Just for a moment, I want you to maybe understand where they're coming from. These are disciples who had been trained up in the Old Covenant. They were very familiar with the Scriptures, the Torah in particular, well beyond you and I and our familiarity with the Torah. And what they knew is that God had sent prophets of old, including a prophet named Elijah. And there was on occasion a time where the enemies of God came to try to take down the man of God, Elijah the prophet. Uh, you guys might not know this story, but it's a pretty famous story. Two, two different times on Mount Carmel. As a matter of fact, yes, I'm going to plug Israel again in November. You will go to Mount Carmel with me in November. It is incredible to be up on top of this famous mountain, Mount Carmel, and the vast valley that's down in front of you. In 1 Kings and in 2 Kings, we're told two different times, the enemies of God come for the prophet of God, and they say, you, O man of God, come down. And he says, if I'm a man of God, fire will come down on you, and it did. And this happened twice. And what the disciples have just encountered, we won't go back and reread it right now, but please do this week and you'll see, they've just seen Jesus transfigured on a mountain. They've just clarified that Jesus, you're greater than any of the prophets. You're greater than Elijah. By the way, in this vision scene of transfiguration on the mountain, Elijah was there. They saw him. They know he's greater. The Samaritans have rejected him. And so they say, fire, is it time? Let's consume the enemies of God. What is Jesus' response? Would you, would you please wrestle with this? What is Jesus' response to the question? 
I wish we had the actual words, but all we know is he rebuked them. This is a way of, this is not like soft correction. This is forceful, stern, no, none of that. You don't understand what it means to be my disciple if you think I'm here to rain down fire and consume those bad people over there. You don't get it yet, disciples. He's not Elijah. He's not just one of the prophets. You've got you to go there and imagine their confusion. And so there comes a time down the road when he finally gets to Jerusalem and a group of soldiers comes to, comes to take him. The prophet from God, the Messiah. And what does this group of soldiers encounter? They don't encounter fire being called down on him, although Peter's still at that point. Peter draws a sword and cuts off the ear. What does this prophet, priest, and king, the Messiah, do. He offers healing to those that are actually there to oppress him. He reaches out his hand in the midst of this moment. We know that when he's being nailed to the cross, what are Jesus's words to the Father on behalf of those who are nailing him to the cross? Father, forgive them. They don't understand what they're doing. So why doesn't fire come down? Why doesn't he say, okay, yeah, yeah, that's, you know, I'm Chapter 12 of the same book, Luke, Jesus actually says, I've come to bring fire. Look at this verse. I came to cast fire on earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. What Jesus is saying is not what they're wanting. Jesus is saying, I have come to take the fire, the wrath of God on everyone's behalf. The reason we don't ask for fire to rain down on them is fire doesn't rain down on us. It rains down on him on the cross. He goes and he takes the wrath of God for you and I. And the reason that we don't look at others like they did the Samaritans and say, oh man, we just need to, God, bring down fire on them is because we get a healing touch instead of fire. That's how the gospel works. We get grace instead of rejection. And this changes our whole orientation towards others. Because we're the recipients, not of the wrath of God, but of the grace of God. Not because we performed our way in, but because he and his mercy poured his life out. So what does this mean? Well, it means it, it really changes you deep within. You and I are no longer performing our way into the kingdom. It changes our identity. We become children of God, sons and daughters that are deeply loved and delighted in by the Father. It changes how we view ourselves and it changes how we view others. Significant week in American political life, social life, um, over a number of issues. Um, a colleague, friend of mine, uh, she said this, and I just, I just love it. I'm gonna be, it's on, gonna be on repeat. Uh, pastors are not pundits. Uh, if you've grown accustomed to Christian pastors in North America being kind of like another talking head, I, I, I think that's a, uh, an abuse of, of the vocation. I'm not a political pundit. That's not my vocation. Uh, that's not my job. Uh, I am absolutely to remind us and show us of God's presence and his promises. Uh, there is a leadership task uh, that's at hand for those that are pastors in North America, but it's not just being another talking head on any platform, including this one. Um, I was having a conversation. Uh, my kids have to put up with me being their dad and being your pastor occasionally. Uh, 
And on Friday, um, it was in the evening, and I was wanting to watch the news uh, because it had been one of those days where I really hadn't been able to hear what I knew of the decision, but I didn't really know, like, what, what, where are we? How are we? And so uh, because of other conversations I had been having with Tucker, I said, hey, before we turn this on, uh, we need to talk about some things that, that are just tr- that are consistent with where we've been, and you're of age where we can have this conversation now. And so we began a conversation, he and I, about what it means to be a person of conviction, to understand God's heart for human life at all ages, at all stages. Um, in fact, um, we're part not only of, of a tradition, a great tradition of Christians who care about the sanctity of human life at every age, at every stage, that um, our province, our diocese would, would quickly go there and remind us of that. Our, our own bishop said this week, um, valuing and protecting life are God's priorities, and so they must also be ours. And we had this conversation about why does God care about human life? And now I'm, I'm a young dad, still learning to be a dad, and I'm with my 12 and a half year old son talking about this and what it means to be a person of conviction. And in the midst of that conversation, and Jen was a part of that with us, um, in the midst of your conviction, son, in the midst of your clarity about what you believe, what we believe, I want you to be a person of compassion. And this is where Jen's leadership in our family is so important because as a person who's in labor and delivery rooms all across DFW, who primarily serves minority groups in DFW now, she was able to speak to the need for Tucker and us as a family to have, yes, deep conviction, but to have deep compassion for those who see this differently or come at it from a different angle. And how do you hold together both conviction and compassion? Um, I don't know, but by the Spirit of God, you can, young man hold together conviction and compassion. You can be a person of principle and you can be a person of overwhelming peacefulness. Do you know how to be that, brothers and sisters in Christ? Conviction and compassion, principle and be a person of peace? Tucker looked at me and said, why are we talking about this on a Friday night? Right, pretty good question. <clears throat> this, later this week, I, I want to share an article with you that, that was uh, written outside of the context of this last Friday because I believe it's really, um, it, it is something that will help educate us as God's people to understand how to be different, how to have principle and be persons of peace. Um, when you are in the room, either in the metaverse or in the actual verse, when you are in the room, Do people experience the peace of God? Do they experience you as not only having deep principles, but actually being a person that's really approachable, really empathetic, really compassionate? This is what Jesus rebuked his disciples for. They didn't get it. And oftentimes, neither do you and I. It's part of growing up as a disciple that you learn to hold this together. Um, Pastor Mark Buchanan wrote an article years ago for Christianity Today at the beginning of a series on their 50-year anniversary. They asked the question, what would it look like for Christians to be countercultural? We're really different than our culture, but at the same time, fulfill our calling to be a blessing to the culture around us. And Buchanan outlined three prophetic images. We don't have time to go into them in depth. 
but he compares Esther, Jonah, and Daniel. Just briefly, Jonah. You know the prophet Jonah? God calls him to the Ninevites, and Jonah's like, are you kidding? Those people? Not only does he not want to go, and not only does he not have compassion on them before they repent, even after they repent, Jonah's like unhappy about it. It's like, you sent me there to do a job, and I did it, and it worked, and I don't care. I wish they would just, you know, just this like very um, uh, uh, principled person who has a, a, a combative relationship to the culture God's called him to go and serve. And there are Jonah churches and Jonah Christians still alive and well today who have that posture towards their culture. Then there's Esther, who wants to be like everyone else, wants to look like everyone else, only a little better. You know, is so, so preoccupied with making sense to the dominant culture that you almost can't tell her apart from the dominant culture. And there are Esther Christians and Esther churches around today. It's just a metaphor, okay? And then there's Daniel. Daniel is really different because he's willing to be renamed. He's willing to be educated in their system in Babylon. He's willing to actually undergo a name change. But there was one thing Daniel wouldn't do. Daniel wouldn't eat of the king's food because to eat of the king's food was an act of idolatry and worship. And there was a, he drew the line. There was wisdom in the public square that Daniel modeled. And it is so uncommon in the Western dialogue and debate right now. What does it look like to be a person of principle and peace, conviction and compassion all at the same time? You and I know this, but let me just say it, that we're becoming more and more tribal as a nation, which means we're becoming more and more isolated from one another. And as followers of Christ, as we live with conviction, it cannot be separated from compassion. We're actually unifiers, you and I. That's what we're called to be. We should be the kind of people that know how to bring people to the table to have hard conversations. Before I end, let me just say it again if you haven't heard me. If you have loads of conviction and you don't have compassion, you don't understand what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. What I observe in most religious movements and in most political movements is the people that are most principled about those movements, religion and politics, are the ones that lack the most compassion. And Jesus sets his disciples straight on this in Luke 9 and says, if you think you're a disciple of mine, you will not just have conviction. Yes, there will be conviction. There will be. But it will also be surrounded, enveloped with a posture of gentleness towards those who are different than you. If you want anything to do with Jesus, if you want to really follow him, you and I don't get to define what that means. He does. And what he does in Luke 9 is he makes it clear that if you want to follow him, he is Lord of everything. Discipleship is not an option. You will have to lose your life in order to find your life. It will mean that your identity won't be found by you just trying to go out and try to find out who you are. You will have to come to him and let him define who you are and what it means to follow him. It also means, as we've heard today, that you will start treating others differently with mercy, with tenderness. I do have some good news. If you feel like um, that's not me yet, let me emphasize the yet. Uh, anybody who is a fan of the Enneagram know of what an unhealthy eight looks like. 
Um, James and John, sons of thunder, I think were unhealthy eights. Uh, lots of principle, lots of conviction, very little compassion. Um, that was me. Uh, my, family, my family of origin is not here to tell on me today. Some of you have come to know me as a pretty gentle person. That is an act of the Spirit of God at work in my heart. It is not natural. It is supernatural. And so wherever it is that as you follow Jesus, that you find yourself coming up and going, I don't know, I don't know about that piece. Would you extend, would you release your control over your life to him? You can trust him. Why can you trust him? Because he's the kind of Lord that goes to the cross on our behalf. One of the reasons we come to the table every week is this story is a reshaping story. It reforms you to be a different kind of person in the world. A person who proclaims Jesus is Lord. He defines the boundaries of human flourishing, not our culture. He's Lord and he pays the price for our sin and he brings health and wholeness in ways that we could never imagine through ways that we would never have dreamed of. I tell you the truth, Jesus says, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The person who will love his life, he'll lose it. While the person who hates his life, that person will keep it for eternal life. Who do you say that he is? Who do the crowds say that he is? As you get clear about that, would you follow him? Would you trust him along the journey? Let's pray together. And so, Lord, we do pray that you would have mercy on us and on our nation. Uh, we don't really get what it means to be your disciple like we want to. And so, Lord, have your way. Speak to us. Uh, refine us. Purify us. Uh, Lord, equip us to know how to live in the world as your witnesses for your kingdom. Lord, that we would truly be a priesthood for this people as your church, different, distinct, with conviction and with compassion. We pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.